Hey Brian, hey listeners, welcome to the 49th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. How are you doing this August evening, Brian? Pretty good, Dan. Yeah, we've been rolling along. Haven't missed a week. Almost to episode 50, almost to a full year. Yeah, I think we got a couple of fun things planned for our 50th episode anniversary. And you're right, it'll be one year just about since we started our podcast, which, man, it does not feel like it's been a full year, but I guess it has. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm sure we'll reflect more if we do another, like, retrospective as we did at 25 but like 2020 was very slow to me and then this year has kind of resumed the standard pace a lot of things aren't back to normal yet but it seems like time is passing quicker for me again indeed and we another special thing coming up for us uh, you and i are both planning to travel to orlando you're going for a full week i'm going for just a couple days we will probably record our next podcast together in a hotel room. Should be fun. We haven't done too many in person together, so I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to, to getting to do something with you. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And I'm sure we'll have more to tell the listeners about our trip. Indeed. So, as I mentioned at the end of last episode, as I was leading into this, one of the movies that I've seen in the past couple of years for the first time that immediately vaulted up into my all-time favorites list is the David Lean romantic drama Brief Encounter. And it made me interested to see more David Lean movies. Particularly, he's kind of got three things that he's known for. One is big visual epics. He did Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago. I think he did those a little later in his career. Yeah, he also did Bridge on the River Kwai. Right, yeah. And then the the second prong is he did at least a couple of Dickens adaptations. I think Great Expectations and Oliver Twist, at least. Um, I haven't seen any of those, but I wouldn't mind seeing them because I've, I've liked what I've seen of David Lean so far. The, the third prong are his more intimate romantic dramas, of which Brief Encounter is one, and Summertime. The movie that I picked for today, 1955 film, Summertime Falls in That Bucket. So I had been holding off on watching this because I figured that it would be a good summertime pick for the goods. So did you get a chance to catch up with this one, Brian? I did check it out, and I was wondering about the process that led you to picking this one. And was it to have a David Lean movie, or was it because of the title... Or did both things really come into play? Really, it was David Lean. I wanted to see it, but I figured as soon as I saw the title and how brightly colored the poster was, I was like, that that would be an interesting one to talk about on the podcast. So I held off on watching it and uh, and, and saved it for us. So here we are. How many David Lean movies have you seen? I've seen Bridge on the River Kwai a couple times. That's one of my favorites. And I've seen, I don't think all of Lawrence of Arabia, but a chunk of that. Both Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia have Alec Guinness in them. Right. 
younger yeah. Obi-Wan. Yeah, who we've talked about on this podcast. He was in the 1970s Scrooge, the Christmas Carol musical adaptation. That's right. And when you said that David Lean had uh, made some Dickens, I double checked and that was not him on Scrooge 1970. That was somebody else. But Oh, okay. That's a good point because that is Dickens, even though I don't really think about it as Dickens. I almost think of Christmas Carol as its own bucket, its own universe, but I guess it very much is a Dickens novella. So, But this is summertime. It's not Christmas. Indeed. Not yet. <laughs> so this movie was adapted from a well-regarded Broadway play called The Time of the Cuckoo. And it bounced around from various directors until it landed with David Lean with Catherine Hepburn pitched as the kind of star. And indeed, she is the the lead here. She plays a woman named Jane Hudson, who we'll be talking a little bit about here. Catherine Hepburn is among the most decorated actresses in Hollywood history. I actually haven't seen too much of her. I, I really only learned more about her this past year when I read a book about the 1967 best picture race called pictures at a revolution. I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast. It's a really good book. I learned a lot. She and her longtime partner, co-star in many films, Spencer Tracy appeared in guess who's coming to dinner, which was like a, a movie where a white daughter brought a black man to dinner and Hepburn and Tracy play the, kind of generic liberal parents who still act sort of aghast that a, a black man has been brought to their dinner table in the, the civil rights sixties that ended up being Tracy's last role. And that was, I guess about a decade before this. So um, they were also famously romantically entangled for much of their career, despite the fact that Spencer Tracy was, married to someone else, but he didn't live with his wife. He lived with Catherine Hepburn, who kind of took care of him. A pretty interesting life story. And obviously she's won awards and nominations. She actually got nominated for this. This movie had two Oscar nominations, Best Director for Lean and Hepburn for um, Best Actress. How much Catherine Hepburn have you seen prior to this? So I've only seen a little bit. I've watched The African Queen before, uh, but I listened to a movie history podcast called You Must Remember This that's arranged in sort of season-long chapters, and one of the seasons was about actresses who had been named box office poison. At one point, some critic wrote a review where they listed people who... Like, if, if this is your star, your movie's going to lose money. And it was called Box Office Poison. And so then the, the podcast did an episode about each of these people and, and looking at their careers. And that really gave me some more information about Katherine Hepburn. She did have a many decades long career. And she filled a string of different role types throughout that time. And... Uh, According to Wikipedia, at least, in the 50s, she was known for playing uh, spinster roles, unmarried women of a certain age. And that's definitely the type at play here in summertime. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, to a T. Also interesting that 
this kind of independent, modern, self-made woman who wears pants a lot of the time. Not not so much in this film, but I, I can picture Catherine Hepburn in my head wearing trousers. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that she was a lesbian. Interesting. And I, I don't know, I can kind of picture that. I don't know, a, a lot of her role in this film, she's like standoffish and just very lonely and just on the edges, on the fringes. Yeah. Let's hold on to that thought because I have some expanded thoughts on on that aspect of this character. Okay. Yeah, so there's yeah speculation. Like her longest professional relationship definitely was with Spencer Tracy and they were very personally linked, but there's like a big personal life section in the Catherine Hepburn article. Like, oh, what... What really was going on? So, Interesting, yeah. I think that to this day there's questions about that type of stuff. Right. Uh, my, one other thing I will say uh, here at the start is that anytime I hear that Catherine Hepburn is in a movie, I for a moment I'm like, oh, Audrey Hepburn. But it's, <laughs> it's not Audrey Hepburn. It's a different Hepburn. It's not the girl from the Breakfast at Tiffany's poster. And if I'm being totally honest, I'm always a little disappointed that it's it's not Audrey Hepburn. Are they related at all? Do you know? I don't think they are. Yeah, I didn't but think so either. But there is a movie where Audrey Hepburn vacations in Italy. It's called Roman Holiday. Yeah, I definitely want to see that one too. That one, I think, quite well regarded and is one I've always wanted to see. So, And it's funny you mention that because Catherine Hepburn was also in a movie with Cary Grant called Holiday which I have gotten mixed up in my head with Roman holiday. Where do they go in just regular holiday? So let's see. The synopsis doesn't say. It says a young man in love with a girl from a rich family finds his unorthodox plan to go on holiday for the early years of his life met with skepticism by everyone except for his fiance's eccentric sister. So it... I, I don't know if it's if it's it's not a specific destination. It seems so. Maybe it's like uh, National Lampoon's Vacation versus European Vacation. <laughs> maybe. So uh, a couple other interesting things about this movie that were at least striking to me. One is that this movie is filmed in Technicolor, which was the predominant, if not only, color filming technique for a long time, and. I actually learned a lot about this reading some of film history. I don't know. I'm sure you probably learned about it in college, but they actually film with a camera that has three lenses and then they dye each of them. I think it's red, yellow, blue, or some three colors. And so it's famous for leading to very saturated colors because you can basically dye the colors as strong as you want. So it's very easy to like dye the reds really strong, the blues really strong. So that, that really carries think of wizard of Oz as like perhaps the classic technicolor film example. And this is interesting to me because you compare it to the movie that inspired me to watch this, which was brief encounter. And that movie is all black and white and beautiful black and white, but very different looking because of that. Another interesting technical aspect of the filming on top of the Technicolor is that as TVs were becoming more prominent, 
the film industry very rapidly shifted from the classic Academy film aspect ratio. So this is 1.37, which is approximately what you would think of as like a non widescreen TV is basically the Academy ratio. It's not quite square. It's a little wider than a square, but think of like an old TV. I know now most TVs are widescreen, but an old TV think that, and that's like what most classic movies are. So pre fifties movies, but right around this time, in order to kind of differentiate themselves, they made the screens wider to make it more of an experience, unlike the TV. And so theaters and cameras started shifting to widescreen, which was 1.85 instead of the 1.37 of the Academy ratio. But for a long time, there were some theaters that couldn't support widescreen and some that could. So filmmakers basically had to make two cuts of every film. And this was just for a few years in the mid to late 50s. But the result was that usually what they would do is they would film it primarily in the Academy ratio, but then they would mat the top and the bottom and send that to the widescreen ones. And so this is an example of a movie that kind of had that enforced limitation. So basically you need to keep the plot related subjects in the center of the frame vertically. In that case, it's usually like characters faces and such, but that means there's going to be lots of kind of additional stuff filmed at the top and the bottom of the, the frame. And if I watched this on HBO, I'm not sure where you watched it, Brian, that one definitely had the Academy ratio. I think this is a movie that actually benefits from that enforced limitation quite a bit because lean was basically forced to film more of Venice at the top and the bottom of the frame and really make us feel more in the city because like we needed that extra space at the top and the bottom to see more of the buildings and the ground and the canals and stuff. I think it really adds to the sense of immersion in, in Venice. I have a comparison that I'll, I'll email you, Brian, of, of a specific shot from this film and what it looks like in these two aspect ratios. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I watched it on YouTube. I think it was pretty widescreen, but I can't say for sure. What I can say for sure is Venice is the star of this movie. And cinematography. Because, yeah, all the colors pop. It's all about showing off the buildings. And it was really neat. It was like a Venice travelogue. I think in a little bit you're going to be talking about a trip you took to Italy. Uh, I'll say here that I took a trip to Italy uh, way back in 2006 in high school. We didn't make it to Venice. I went to a couple other places, Rome and the Vatican and a couple spots, Capri, but never to Venice. Uh, My knowledge of Venice, though, is in 2018, I developed a course for kids to learn about virtual reality and mostly what it entailed was just trying out a bunch of free vr apps that were available and one was put out by i think the smithsonian and it was a tour through the streets of venice but in vr Ooh! and so it's like this professional tour guide standing in like 
the Piazza de San Marco and the glass blowing shop on Murano or Burano. I, I'm not sure which. Yeah, just standing at these different locations and oh, in the best shot, he is sitting in a gondola and being paddled along down the canal. And the gimmick is that in all of these, they just set up a 360 camera next to the tour guide. And so it's like you're standing there in the square and you can just turn completely around and look up in the sky and look down at your feet. And it's like you're there in the gondola or uh, on the plaza. Uh, That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So I I strongly recommend, uh, I think it was called Smithsonian Journeys Venice. That's cool. Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this Italy trip now that I took. I took it in 2016. This is my favorite trip I've ever been on and probably will be for the rest of my life. It was like a really influential, important trip for me for a lot of reasons. So first of all, it was my first trip outside of the country for me ever, except for one uh, kind of resort type visit to the Caribbean. Uh, a couple of years earlier, but really my, the most I've ever felt escaped from my own reality and like really in a different culture. Um, so that was like, really had a strong impact on me. We went for about 10 days and we went to Rome, Florence. Uh, we stayed in a village in Tuscany and went to a kind of classic Tuscan winery. And then we ended the trip in Venice And one reason this trip was really memorable is it happened at a time in my life that is like in retrospect and even at the time, like a very pivotal in the way my life was changing. So I'd had the same job out of college for over six years and I had just left that job when I went to Italy and also we ended up having a baby less than a year later. And so like my life completely changed, you know, my first job ever to a totally different job and then becoming a parent all like right around the time of my life that I went to this trip as well. And so it was like one of the last like really memorable things I did before I had a kid. And I don't know, it's just something that stuck with me. And I have to say out of all the cities we visited, Venice was easily my favorite. Maybe not easily. Rome was right up there, too. I really loved Rome. But Venice and Rome are my two favorite cities that I think I've ever been to. There's just something so unusual about Venice. You really feel like you're in a different world. It it just looks so different. This It's so compact, like a can of sardines with the buildings that are like all three stories high. Other than the famous plazas. Um, particularly San Marco, which is like this huge open plaza. Whenever you walk anywhere, the quote unquote streets are really just alleys between buildings. And it really feels like you're just carving through a maze, like a labyrinth. And of course the canals are, are just absolutely wild. There's also something about like the architecture and the culture that's really interesting because it was famously like a, a merchant city. You know, that's where, the people who were bringing in, you know, spices and stuff from the Eastern world, bringing it to the Western world and, and vice versa. So you had an influx of a lot of different cultures in this city. And it really does feel like just weird worlds colliding 
pulling in things from everywhere else. It's kind of hard to describe, but it just had a feeling to it that really kind of washes over you when you're there. And I think this movie, I completely agree with you. Its biggest strength is immersing you in that. Like I really felt nostalgic for my visit there because you capture that feeling of walking around the alleys of seeing the bright plaza, the interesting, weird architecture, the boat taxis, the gondolas, all that stuff. This movie really does capture. So, yeah, I mean, I highly recommend Venice. And the kind of sad thing about Venice is because of climate change, it's sinking. A lot of it was man-made on like basically right at sea level. And so things that were sustainable buildings are basically the bottom floor is flooded. And even when we were there, the San Marco Plaza flooded one day and they have to put out like these weird, like walking, I don't know what you would call them, like risers basically, because you can't walk on the ground because it's flooded by three inches. And <laughs> I mean, it's it it feels like when you go there now, it's like a city in decay. Like it used to be, the richest city in the world and now like things are all faded and it's it's a shadow of its former glory but man seeing that like it literally sinking into the ocean definitely amps up that feeling of decay quite a bit so i say brian if you or any listeners get a chance particularly in the next 10 or 15 years to go see venice to to jump on that opportunity because it's not necessarily something you're going to be able to do 30 40 50 i don't know how many years from now yeah. It's noteworthy to think about that this movie came out in 1955, so pre-color television days. TVs were around, but not in color. And so this really served as, like, a travelogue. It's just a way to see a place that a lot of people might not be able to go to. You know, it they can't look at it on their computer or their cell phone. So this is the budget trip to Venice, just watching this movie. It does about as good a job of that as, as you could imagine. It's so much of its time is just wandering around Venice. And yeah, there's one thing in particular I think you would like, um, Brian, which is one of the islands. I don't think it's the Burano or Murano, whichever one they spend some time on here. But there's one island that became the Graveyard Island. So... There wasn't good places for burying people. And so they had one island. They're like, that's just where we're going to bury everyone. And so you go there and it's really creepy to like go to an island whose sole purpose is to house rich dead people with like these ornate gravestones that are kind of moss covered. And you can wander that the same way that you can kind of wander Venice. And it's got like all these weird different gravestone architecture to it and things you can climb up and down and it's just very interesting. So I feel like Count Gauntley would get a kick out of that place. Yeah, that's cool. And just in case anybody's wondering, there is both a Burano and a Murano. I was afraid I might have imagined Murano, but no, that's the place uh, featured in the VR app that they do a lot of traditional glass blowing, which does come up in this film. Uh, but your note is also correct that Burano is also featured. Gotcha. I think we've given sufficient background to this film that we can go ahead and dive into a story that, spoilers, the story itself might not justify 
the build up to it. But that's yeah, I right. guess we got to talk about it eventually. So here we go. So this movie opens with Jane Hudson, who is the character played by Hepburn. She's very clearly a single, middle class, middle aged American woman. Um, the title is like it's kind of interesting. It's like a almost Da Vinci style paintings showing her basically flying to Paris and boarding a train and riding to Venice. But the, the film proper opens with her arriving in a train in Venice. One interesting thing about this opening with the train and spoilers closing with the train, the connections, I'm not going to dwell too much on the connections to brief encounter. Brian, I think you should go see that film at some point, but this one definitely had me primed to be making comparisons with, with that opening. And David Lean can just shoot the shit out of a train. He makes it look so good. You see the steam. It feels big and impressive and full of motion. So I was digging whenever there was a train on screen. Nice. Right away, we see Jane just thrown into the peculiarities of Venice's look. And she, she's got kind of a good... Hepburn has this good look of astonishment, like open mouth gawking at everything around her. We already talked about some of Venice's unique things, but the, the, the main thing we see here that's really striking is the water bus. So there's like a main canal in Venice that's wider and you just kind of hop on it the same way you would in a bus in another city. And it's just really unusual. And one of the things they recommend tourists do is basically hop at the start of the bus and go all the way down the canal because it's actually a nice way to get a visual tour of all of the nicest architecture um, or at least personal house architecture in Venice because you can kind of see it because the richest people had the houses that were right on the big canal. And they mentioned that the bus is much cheaper than a gondola. They say the gondola costs a thousand lira and the bus costs 50 lira. Yeah, we didn't spring for a gondola when we were in Venice. Um, Wait, you didn't do a gondola at all? No, we did the we did boats, but we didn't do the gondola. I mean, it's one of those things that I wish I had done, but people will say is a little bit of a scam. It's kind of like a tourist trap type thing. But it, in retrospect, I wish I had because it feels like the thing you got to do. But I will say, as much as you see gondolas in this movie and in literally any depiction of Venice, they're not quite as prominent as you might think from all of that when you're actually there. Also, shout out to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is another movie that prominently features Venice. Right. Uh, the dude who's going to eventually show up in this movie drives a little wooden speedboat that is the same kind that is in Last Crusade that gets chopped up in the propeller. Oh, nice. One thing you didn't mention right at the start of the movie is they kind of do a lot that made me not like Catherine Hepburn's character very much. Like, she brings a ton of bags. And, I mean, I guess that's just the classic, like, out-of-touch, overpacked tourist. But, like, wherever she goes, somebody's got to carry this inordinate amount of bags. And she also says everything at the top of her lungs. <laughs> like way louder than anybody else around her. And she has this obnoxious voice. 
she sounds like a gangster, like James Cagney or something. She's like, yeah, see? Just a very nasal, old-timey accent. Yeah, I think I changed my mind about five times on how much I liked her performance as the movie was going. I agree that I'm going to talk a little bit more about how I feel like this movie is a little bit of like old Hollywood, you know, classic World War II era America in the clashing with what looks a little bit more modern and like culturally feels like it could have been a little bit more modern than it ended up being, uh, particularly this character. It just kind of comes across as like an old Hollywood way of acting that doesn't really fit the more verite style of being in the streets of Venice, you know, being shot on location, etc., with all these extras and tourists all around. It does stand out. And she's also very forward with all of the people she meets, like talking to them and striking up conversations and inviting herself to stuff that is like as a millennial, they joke that like we're very indecisive and don't like inconveniencing people. And it did make me quite uncomfortable how much she inserted herself into other people's plans and conversations. Oh, that's interesting because then like 20 minutes after the start of the movie, she's very not doing that. She's like very reticent and doesn't overstep. So like, that's kind of inconsistent. That's true. Like, well, she kind of tries to a little bit, but then, I think part of the gist of her character is she's looking for something to latch on to a group or a person perhaps to connect her visit to on a personal level. And so I think she tries some, like she does a little bit with the hotel owner or not, I guess not a hotel. It's like a, the bed and breakfast owner. Well, let's talk about them now. Cause we actually pretty shortly meet. She arrives at the bed and breakfast and we meet some of the people staying there with her. And in rapid succession, we see her basically trying to spend some more time with them. So one is probably the most prominent. It's this older American couple. And uh, we meet them pretty early. They share that they're doing like a classic old person grand tour of Europe. And they are here mainly as comic relief of exactly what you were talking about. Like Americans doing tourism the wrong way and like being grumpy about how things are different and like talking about things just in terms of how much they cost. And, and I, I kind of liked this couple and felt like I have seen plenty of them in my somewhat limited world travels as well. We also meet the bed and breakfast owner. She's identified as Signora Fiorini. And the other person who works there is this housemaid who her shtick is she's always singing or playing music on the radio named Giovanna. And then the last group of people there is a couple who are like a suave, young, hip artist and his doting, beautiful, blonde wife. And variously, um, Hepburn's character, Jane, will try to spend some more time with each of them. But basically, they each end up kind of doing their own things. And so Hepburn is more or less by herself for the first third or so of this movie. Although at one point, the hotel owner is like, hey, I'm going to meet a friend. You should come. And Hepburn is like, no, no, I'll be a third wheel. And the person says, no, it'll it'll really be okay. You should come, come to this party. That's true, yeah. She says, nope. 
Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. That's interesting. It made me think a little bit of uh, Dead on Arrival, uh, another movie we watched, which starts with a character going on vacation by himself. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of unclear in that movie, like what his itinerary was, like what he was even planning to do. But then he (laughs) comes across a party that he gets, you know, pulled across the hall of his hotel into a party. And then that is the direction the the thrust of the movie takes. But here in just in this, this one moment, I I thought we were going to get steered into something, but then she spends like 15 minutes sitting around various places, moping. Right. Yeah, you're right. There, it's just kind of weird. I don't. I agree with you. It's like, what is her plan here? Does she want to be with people? Does she not? What does she actually want to do? I mean, the end result is we see her basically just sitting around the beautiful vistas of Venetian architecture and plazas and stuff. So I actually kind of quite liked this portion of the film, but I, I didn't know where we were going with the character. I definitely agree. The, the one person she really does eventually connect with is this kind of street urchin type boy named Morrow. And he he's kind of depicted as like if you've ever been abroad, there there will be kids trying to like sell you cheap trinkets. Like I'm I'm even thinking of maybe Dickens is on the mind, but a little bit of like Oliver Twist where they send out the sad looking orphan boys to sell stuff or, or newsies or whatever. And eventually though, Hepburn's character kind of hits it up with, with Morrow and he's it's almost like a tour guide around Venice for, for the first half of this movie. So this kid, I could not understand like 80% of what he said, just cause he's got a strong accent and well, he's communicating, you know, in English to her, but obviously with Italian as his first language, I suppose. Uh, I was watching it on YouTube, though, so I couldn't turn on subtitles, at least as far as I know. Mm. Uh, otherwise, I definitely would have once this guy showed up. Yeah. No, I, I watched with subtitles and I didn't even think about that. But like, yeah, you. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have understood if I didn't have the text right in front of me. Because he... I think he actually is an Italian boy acting. He, he really does sound Italian, and I, I agree. Easier to understand the children in Luca, which was another <laughs> Italian village movie that I watched recently with uh, water as a prominent element. I've been meaning to watch it. I, I haven't yet, but I, I will for sure. That and Cars 2 and 3 are the only Pixars I haven't seen. I think in Cars 2, they spend at least a little time in Italy too. So. Oh, there you go. Make sure you cue that one up. Pixar Italy binge. At one point, Jane has a little monologue, which I thought was one of the more memorable bits of writing in the film, where she's talking to Signora Fiorini, who is the the bed and breakfast owner. And she talks about a woman that she met traveling. And it's pretty clearly signaled to the audience that she's also if not consciously, then subconsciously talking about herself, but how she met this woman who said that she was coming here to find something, something way, way back in her, a magical, mystical miracle, but I don't know what it was. And I don't know. I feel like the film is setting us up 
for something powerful to happen to the Hepburn character that she's just not prepared for. But one thing I'd like to add here, we see really frequently in the first half and she has this really interesting old school hand crank camera or like video recorder or something. I didn't know exactly what the technology was, but clearly a camera type device. And first of all, it was really cool just to see this vintage camera thing. It also is a pretty interesting bit of symbolism too, because she really uses it in the first half of the film, mostly when she's kind of engaging in Venice and Italy through a glass pane and at a bit of a distance before she finds something that she really connects with. What did you think of this little camera thing, Brian? It was neat. And yeah, I didn't recognize the precise medium either. It seemed like it must have been capturing motion because it made like a whirring sound as though the reels were turning inside. And at one point she swaps out the film and it does look like it's on what I would think of as a film reel, like a movie reel. Yeah, like Super 8 or something. Um, But as far as what was available in terms of like home video in 1955, I don't even know. <laughs> so it's it's a pretty interesting moment in personal media history. Uh, but if it's just some kind of still camera too, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but yeah, it was eye-catching. During all this wandering around Venice that, that we talked about, she spends quite a bit of time in the famous San Marco Plaza, which is the big open plaza right in front of the San Marco Cathedral. And this is probably the most iconic single place in Venice. Um, I, I definitely spent a lot of time there when I was in Venice. So San, it's one of, first of all, it's a cathedral, San Marco Cathedral. And I really, really like cathedrals. That was my one of my most favorite things about going to Italy. So we went to something like 10 different cathedrals, especially in Rome. There's obviously uh, the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which is like the single most famous cathedral in the world, probably. But there's actually four papal basilicas in Rome. And I actually recommend if you're visiting Rome, St. Peter's is the most magnificent of them, but the effect of it is somewhat diminished compared to the other uh, papal cathedrals. And so I recommend going to the other ones as well, because you really, you feel the solemnity of it and like just how big it is and how it's kind of there for the purpose of prayer and meditation and spirituality in like art and the beauty and like letting the kind of godliness of the, the art and the architecture just sweep over you. Whereas if you go to St. Peter's, you just can't do that because they have like tourists snapping pictures everywhere and uh, like cues you have to follow and stuff. But cathedrals are cool. They're generally in a... So so Western cathedrals are typically in a cruciform shape. So you have shaped like a cross where there's a long main passage. And then about two thirds of the way down, there's kind of a crossing passage with a left and right wing so that it's shaped like a, a cross again. But Eastern cathedrals typically ha- are plus shaped. So you have... It's similar, but the the long it's not quite as long. And uh, San Marco is interesting because it is 
plus shaped cathedral. So it's in the Eastern style and has a lot of Eastern style art and design in it, which you actually get some of in this film, like some of the more curved tops and like statues of people who look like they are not white. And um, again, it's just, this is the place where it really reinforces that Venice was where East met West and, and those things kind of collided there. One of the most iconic things about this cathedral is the four golden horses. So did you spot these golden horses? I, I don't know if you're familiar with them, Brian. I'm sure they came up in the virtual reality tour, but I don't remember them specifically. So these golden horses were something of like the equivalent of a championship belt in wrestling, because whenever one nation or army would invade another place, whoever owned these, they would steal the golden horses and then come display them at some magnificent building in their country. So they moved around a whole lot. Like whenever a place would get invaded, whoever was doing the invading would take the golden horses. And I guess like when this whole cycle of invasion ended, somehow it was Venice that these places, that these golden horses ended up. And you can actually go up to the top of the cathedral and there's like a little balcony there. You can walk around and see the golden horses and get right up next to them. I can't remember if they're the originals or the, or the replicas in Italy. A lot of like the classic statues have been replaced with replicas, but it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. The spoils of war are an interesting topic. <laughs> uh, I was listening to something recently about the Rosetta stone and was struck how it basically sat in Egypt for like 2000 years. But then when Napoleon was trying to take over the world, you know, his guys, his soldiers found it in Egypt. And then it was like a French Royal treasure, but it was only for like five years because then England beat Napoleon. And now it's been in the British museum for 200 plus years. Yeah. sounds like a similar thing. It's pretty funny. The film's conflict proper, premise proper, begins towards the end of this first day when she's having a drink by herself somewhere near this big plaza. By the way, a notable thing about this plaza near the San Marco Cathedral is it's really sprawling and wide open as compared to the rest of Venice, which is very much not that. So like the second you step out there, it just looks so different and open. And we, there's an amazing shot in this movie where she first steps out there and it's framed like her back to the whole plaza. And you really get a sense of the space of this specific plaza. So at some point she's having a drink. I think it's actually in this plaza. It might be a different one nearby, but um, there's a whole crowd there. And she catches an older Italian or middle-aged Italian man kind of flashing some goo-goo eyes towards her. Who's, he's also having a drink by himself and she gets kind of freaked out and she quickly pays her bill and, and hurries off. This is the man whom we will be spending much of the rest of the movie with as a spoiler here. And his name is Rosano Brazzi. That's the actor. And the character is Renato Rossi. <laughs> so it's almost like you can swap those. Uh, and I'm sure I'm going to get it mixed up. Yeah. Both his real name and the character's name 
sound almost like if you were going to make up a suave Italian man's name, that's the name that you would come up with. Had you ever seen this actor before that you knew of? I did not recognize him, no. So he's also in South Pacific, Mm. which came out in 1958, so three years after this movie. And in that one, he's playing a similar character in a similar situation where he's like the middle-aged European lover uh, with some baggage in his past, as we we might come to find in a little bit here. Right. Uh, But in that one, he's a French guy. Oh, interesting. What he reminds me of is uh, the, the French rival Belloc in Raiders of the Lost Ark. A little bit. I have news. Yeah. He, less sinister here, but he, he dresses similarly and he's just got a, a kind of similar look. Right. I saw also on his profile that uh, on Letterboxd that he was in the Italian job, but the original Italian job, not the circa 2000 remake of the Italian job. Yeah. The one with Michael Caine, not the one that's a extended mini cooper commercial (laughs) so the next day uh, hepburn's character jane is once again wandering venice she spots a very striking red goblet in a shop window i thought it was a hideously ugly goblet but it's like just red glass showing off the technicolor saturated colors here and and she wanders into the store and it turns out that the person who owns that shop is none other than the man with whom she had locked eyes the previous evening. They get some repartee about bargaining, like how when you're in Italy, you're supposed to bargain, which hints at a cultural gap between the two. In general, for me, the, the flirting and the repartee did not do too much for me in this movie. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you. Well... My take, and I'm going to come back to this, but uh, in a previous romance film discussion, I think it was Kate and Leopold, I talked about how, for me, the twist that inevitably comes in romance movies where suddenly a, a conflict is thrust into the mix late that pulls the lovers apart. And, oh, now they can't be together because of some contrived twist. And how often I I thought that doesn't feel earned uh, and just seems abrupt and and like a reason why they can't be together that is it just rings false and it was just tossed in to create some artificial conflict when I, I wouldn't otherwise see it being there. But here in this movie, the conflict I think is contrived is the stuff that comes early on where... You know, he shows up and his is like making eyes at her and she's like spooked and skittish, I guess, even though we've just seen her sitting around crying for like 20 minutes and just, oh, I'm so alone. And and then when a dude shows up and is interested, she's like, oh, mercy me and needs to like clutch her pearls and just be standoffish and aloof in every way possible. You've just hit on something that I think intentionally or not is sort of like a cultural artifact of this film. And basically all of these conversations 
there's like a weird divide between what I was kind of feeling and expecting. And it's that this character, Jane, she has sort of like an old school prim and proper attitude where like women need to be, you know, uh, they can't be too forward. They need to be somewhat resistant. They need to play hard to get and let the man be driving forward of it. That really did not otherwise match the character's personality and like everything that was happening with her. It just felt really weird to me. Like I noticed that exact dynamic as well. And I kind of, I, again, I chalk it up to maybe like the time that this movie was filmed and the cultural headspace that we were at at that point where this might have made more sense if you were watching it in the 50s and you would have kind of understood why she acted that way. But I agree. It just felt, <laughs> I didn't see why like this man who she clearly had a connection with she was being so prudish and not wanting to admit any affection towards or attraction towards. Yeah, I don't know. I was I was pulling on my hair. I was like, come on, lady, get the movie moving. <laughs> He's here. Um, another thing. So one thing that is a stereotype, perhaps a almost kind of racist stereotype that pops up frequently in fiction is the idea of a Italian man who like sexually preys on tourists, like finds the lonely tourists and hits them up for an affair. Or I've read this in multiple books. I don't know if I've seen it depicted in a movie, but like the, the whole vibe of the over suave, over friendly Italian man trying to get with the lonely tourist I was getting vibes of that and that influenced my perception of the Renato character. I kind of had a slightly ooky feeling about him the whole movie. Just a slight air of sleaziness about him that I think is more about my own personal biases than perhaps his depiction here, but where I almost kind of got her <laughs> resistance, you know, I don't know. No, I think you might be on to something. Uh, I have some thoughts on that that I'll come back to as we learn a little bit more about him. So she ends up buying this goblet at a reduced price. And she asks if he has another one. And he says he doesn't, but he promises to try to find another one for her, which is kind of their cue to see each other again. So I think she says she might stop by and he she tells him where she's staying. And so he can go bring the goblet to her, but it's clearly just kind of an open-ended invitation for them to cross paths again, I suppose. Although that night again, she does bump into him, I think again at the plaza and she's eating dinner by herself. And there's like a, a feeling that maybe she's going to invite him to dinner, but she doesn't. And that's when we get her peak Catherine Hepburn looking lonely and sad. We get a really cool shot that I, I quite liked where as he's walking away that we get a shot of her kind of looking towards the camera as the camera is zooming out. So it's like we are kind of walking away as he's walking away and she has this look of longing on her face that I thought was a really effective little shot. Yeah, I guess this part though. So like, some of the other people who were staying at the hotel walk by and I guess 
to make them think that she's not alone. She does this thing where she, like, puts another plate on the table, which I get. I, I can understand that thing. But then she leans, like, another chair so that it's up against the table. But, like, tipped forward so the back of the chair is leaning on the table. It's hard to describe but this, to me, is not a sign that somebody is sitting there. This, mm. it, it looks like the, she's, like, stacked the chair up on the table almost. Like, it's done for the day. Like, nobody's going to use that chair. I don't know. I, I guess this is a dated way of, like, holding a seat for somebody. Interesting. Yeah, But maybe. then Renato walks up and sees that. And I guess what we're supposed to understand is he thinks, Oh, she has another dinner guest. I, I can't sit there. She's spoken for. And he walks on off into the background and she gets this long, sad look. But it's like, oh my god, you made this bed totally <laughs> by yourself, for yourself, and you could so easily get out of it. It's like, just stand up and say, oh, hey, Renato, I didn't see you there. Do you want to sit down and have whatever I'm eating here? <laughs> no, I see what you're saying for sure. A lot of her loneliness is self-inflicted. Just like, get over it, get on with it. But the next day, I guess she decides she wants to see him again. She goes by the shop. Renato is not there. <laughs> and I guess because she like misses the fleeting feeling of attraction, she decides she wants to take her little weird picture film machine of the shop. And so she starts to film it and she's kind of backing up as she's taking the picture and she stumbles into a canal and gets obviously completely soaked. She is pulled out and is just drenched and has to go back to the bed and breakfast, totally embarrassed by what just happened. Um, I read a really interesting anecdote of this little scene that Catherine Hepburn didn't want to film it. She didn't, she wanted a stunt double to do it. She would thought she might get sick if she did it. But David lean was like, no, if you don't do it yourself, it'll be obvious. Like the audience will know. So just, just man up and do it. And so she finally agreed to do it, but she did indeed get sick from it. She got a case of pink eye that she stuck with her for the rest of her life on and off. And so, I don't know, it's kind of a jerk move from David lean when she didn't even want to do it. And, and she did indeed get sick from it, but that was too bad. This is one of the only like actual set pieces in the film where some action other than just, walking and looking around Venice and talking happens. Man, that's kind of gross. <laughs> I'd also be worried about like hitting my head or something. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not that wide uh, a gap. Uh, yeah. But also like a, a total three stooges move or something like, I don't think it would be easy to make this mistake. And like, there's people there like, I feel like someone would stop her or something. I don't know. Yeah. I agree. It, it didn't really feel that realistic to me. I guess we're getting the character as low as she can go before things start to turn around romantically. Mm -hmm. Because as she's drying up at the bed and breakfast, Renato comes and finds her and like weirdly and slightly creepily brings her into another room and lowers the shades and professes his attraction towards her. So, like, we kind of see her really s starting to get swept away, although it hits its first roadblock when uh, the McElhenney's, who are the 
the Amer- older American tourist couple who are staying at the same bed and breakfast, <laughs> they kind of storm in, breaking the tension in the room, and they reveal, hey, we got a set of matching red goblets. Look at these red goblets. And man, they're just made fresh. Whereas Renato, they look just like the one that Renato had sold Jane, and he had been claiming that they were like 18th century and rare and hard to find. He like kind of has an explanation for it. Oh, they used the same molds for centuries. But I didn't really know what we were supposed to take away from this. And she doesn't really seem phased by it. And it's never revisited. I thought the vase thing was going to be revisited again. But it just kind of ends there. It was just kind of a weird thread for me that I didn't really understand. Yeah, I read a disparaging review of this movie. It was like, all we learn about Renato's background is he sells possibly fake goblets. (laughs) Or yeah, possibly fake antique goblets. That's funny. But she does indeed agree to go out to dinner with him. And while they're out, he buys her a flower and lets her kind of pick from this basket which flower she wants. And she picks a gardenia, which... I think she has like a, a background story for why she does. It's supposed to be like a poetic symbol of her kind of humble roots and nostalgia. But this is actually the first time we get Venice shot at night is when she's out at dinner with this guy. And I thought it was nearly as beautiful at night as it was during the day. Like you get lots of glowing lights and dark blues and reflections off the water of like lanterns and stuff. I'm glad that we got some of Venice at night because that was also magical for me when I was there is you could just wander around like bars are open. You can go f- through these alleyways and stuff and not even really know where you're going and, and find another place to sit down and get a gelato or get a drink or something. So I, I was glad we got some of that too. But while she's walking around at night, she drops that flower and he reaches in to, to pick it up, to grab it. And can't quite grab it, so it floats away just out of his grasp, which sets up an image that will be mirrored in the the finale of this film. It it looked like he could have reached it to me. (laughs) Stretch a little more, my man. Maybe it's like a, you know, the door or whatever the floating flotsam is in Titanic, where it's like, for narrative purposes, it needs to not be big enough to hold them both. He needs to not be able to reach that flower right now. But it's like, come on, dude, stretch. (laughs) Yeah, like, if you don't want to get your sleeve wet, like, take off your jacket and roll up your sleeve. But you could probably grab that flower. Maybe he saw Catherine Hepburn get pink eye and he's like, I'm not (laughs) touching that water, David Lean. You can't make me. Perhaps. So as they're walking home that night, they share a kiss and agree to see each other the next day. And... She kind of pretties herself up with some spa and shopping time for her next date with him. And while she's waiting for him at dinner, I think again at the plaza, but I could be wrong. The store assistant who we had previously seen at at the Renato store and whom Renato had called his nephew shares inadvertently, like not knowing that this is a secret, that he is in fact Renato's son and Renato is married, meaning that... Their romantic tryst is an affair for Renato. And I think this is where you're going with this. This did not enhance my view of this character and his sleaziness. Again, perhaps colored by preconceptions of what Italian men are towards tourists. 
in in fiction. Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. Remember what I said about how usually the late movie twist in a romance film doesn't do it for me because it seems contrived and artificial. But this is a real roadblock. <laughs> like if this came out all of a sudden in this situation, I could see this being a big stumbling block and Catherine Hepburn's character having a big problem with this and not being able to get past it and it causing them to break up. Uh, and she confronts him about it. And basically what he says is, uh, everybody in Europe does this, you know? I'm a Italian Lothario. <laughs> and it's just standard practice that dudes have mistresses. And besides... You're an old spinster, and who else is going to have you? So you better just settle. <laughs> and, like, oof. Yeah. This is two huge gut punches he's just landed. Just in pretty much immediate follow-up, she decides, okay, yeah, you're right, I'm okay with this. And they're rolling around in the grass in the next shot. So, I feel like the idea here is... Well, it's a few conflicting ideas that this movie is trying to do. I think one is that she's like romanticizing and idealizing Italy when in fact it's just as messy and ugly as real life and has these things you need to accept. And in much the same way, she needs to accept those things about herself. Like, I think that was the intent just based off of what the actual plot points are, but that does not convey very well at all if that was their intent and yeah i mean it just comes as comes across really harsh also this dude did not plan well like he sends his his son to go tell her he's going to be late like i don't know did you not think that that was going to slip out there i don't know yeah i watched this with my mom and that's what she said it's like what was the plan there yeah <laughs> so that he has his children go send messages to his mistress or potentially mistresses. At this point, <laughs> this was when it came to my mind that he could easily do this once a month. Yeah. Every weekend. Yeah. With a different woman. Yeah. It's like, Oh, the, the bus is coming in <laughs> back to, let's see what the crop is today. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, so the one kind of mitigating thing that he, he pitches her on is that, He's separated from his wife, which to me, like saying, hey, I'm divorced, I'm separated like that. I don't know. I think this is another thing that is a little bit caught up in the cultural mores of the 50s. Like, I feel like if he just sells this up front as I am separated from my wife, I'm divorced from my wife, I have kids, but I'm like a middle aged, lonely guy that that could have been a much better sell than what actually ended up happening here. I don't know. Right. But I mean, it's the same type of thing as like, oh, actually, the glasses are old. You just can't tell. Right. It's like there's no way for her character to learn the truth here. And That's true. so there's no way for us to learn it either. <laughs> and he just looks bad and shady. We get I, I guess the idea here is that like it's giving her perspective into this is the complicated way the world works. She encounters kind of the suave artist fellow having an affair with the hotel owner and also the the wife of the artist fellow. 
Oh, and there's this whole weird thing where the street urchin boy is his part of his street urchin gig is that he calls gondolas for people who are having affairs so they can discreetly escape. I, I don't really know what the movie was going at here. I feel like you could have cut off this scene here. It didn't really do too much for me or, or else lean more into like love is complicated and do a little bit more with that idea. It didn't really tease that out too much. It was just kind of backing up Renato's claim that, oh, everybody in Italy does this. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. But she does indeed get over it when Renato approaches her and they go out for a night on the town, dancing, dinner, and wine. And like at the end of the evening, we get this shot of fireworks. And just as soon, basically, I think I guess they're at his place. And he kind of pulls her into the bedroom and she slips off her shoe. Very much a cue for us that they're going to be sharing a bed that evening. I read a couple of places that they had more footage of this hookup that they decided to ditch or they were forced to ditch to meet the American production code. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't subtle. There's a bunch of fireworks no. going off. It's like the the gag of the train going into the station. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I don't think you needed more than what you had here. I, I think it worked just fine in conveying what was happening. At this point, we're only like, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes from the ending. We see various scenes of them spending the next several days in bliss together, wandering Venice, lazing at the island of, I think this one is Burano that they are at in this movie, not Morano. I'm going to have to look up these islands and, Make sure I'm getting them right. They do both exist, though. Yes. So we're good <laughs> on that front. And after after several romantic days together, the movie takes a turn because Jane Hepburn's character announces that she's leaving. She's heading home. She's cutting the affair off for reasons that are, in my opinion, not too sharply articulated. Like, I think the idea is that, and she kind of says this, that she's, basically pulling off the Band-Aid now, like the longer that she let, lets it go on, the harder it's going to be for what is clearly a short-term thing for her to let go of it. But it still seemed like I didn't really get why she would just doing it if she was having a good time. I don't know. Yeah, this did seem rather abrupt. If this is what she's been looking for to like add meaning to her life, and she has decided apparently that She's okay with sharing the dude, potentially. Maybe not if they're divorced, but there's no way of knowing that. But it seemed like she had come to terms with it. And then all of a sudden, I didn't even remember that she told him. I just thought she, next scene, is getting on the train to go home. It, it happens real quickly, yeah. Because something we haven't said is that she mentions that her job is like being a secretary or something, an executive assistant, and she's just saved forever to go have this trip. Not super clear how well off she is financially. Like, I guess she's going back to work her job again. <laughs> Just going back to mundane life. Yeah, that's the gist. Yeah, it seems like, I, I guess she doesn't speak Italian, so she couldn't exactly <laughs> uh, take dictation in Italy. But uh, even so, I I don't know. It's like, what does she, what does she have to go back to? Right. What happens for her after this movie? Yeah, it's interesting to wonder what's in, in store for Jane Hudson when she gets back from Venice. Like, 
Do you think there's any chance that she writes a longing love letter to him at some point? I kind of feel like she would, but he would not, you know, it's like he would, maybe I'm just again, projecting onto the stereotype of the slightly sleazy Italian man hitting on the tourists, but I feel like he would move on more easily than she would, which makes it all the more perplexing that she's the one who cuts it off. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it was cold and harsh when he said, what other options you got? (laughs) But there was some truth to it. It's like he obviously has got at least one other woman lined up. Right. But she tells him that she's leaving and she implores him not to follow her to the train station. But as she is boarding the train, she longingly looks around, hoping that he defied her and is following her. Instead, she bumps into Morrow, the the street urchin boy, there for some reason, I don't know why, and gets like a rather in-depth farewell to Morrow, who kind of kindly gives her a little trinket, like a pen or something, to say goodbye, and she doesn't even need to pay him for it. But she gets on the train, and literally as the train is pulling out, we do see Renato arrive, and he's running to the station as the train is pulling away and he has a gift for her and he's reaching reaching but can't quite hand it off and he had bought another gardenia to give to her kind of mirroring the can't quite reach the gardenia moment from earlier this is yet another airport slash train station chase i think we talked about them in i think it was kate and leopold we talked about the recurring thing in romantic movies of one last chase to the airport. But I got to say it works better for a train station, especially if you have like the train pulling off just very poetic of just out of reach or perhaps just in reach. Yeah. Generally speaking, it's harder to run after an airplane that's taking off. Although maybe this is not the week to be talking about running after an airplane taking off. (laughs) Yeah. Good, that's a good point. I was thinking not of scenes from Afghanistan, but of, I think it's a Jim Carrey movie. I think it's Liar Liar. Oh, it is Liar Liar. Where he like, it's cha- it does the airport thing, but doesn't he like grab onto the wing of the plane or something like that? He's definitely, there's a shot where the plane is taxiing down the runway and whoever is on the plane looks out the window and Jim Carrey is just sprinting cartoonishly down the runway and yeah he does somehow he stops the plane yeah i I remember that i like liar liar i would watch that again that could be a pick for us at some point i want a jim carrey golden era movie at some point i almost picked the mask a while ago but i feel like we need one to talk a little bit about jim carrey at some point yeah i agree one thing that i thought was fitting for the movie itself is we we get like a kind of Uh, extended shot of her waving goodbye to Renato, her hand out the window waving, but the train kind of takes a curved path so you can no longer see Renato, but you can see the cityscape of Venice, and she's still waving goodbye. So really the last thing we see her waving goodbye to is not Renato, but the city itself, which I thought was a perhaps unintentional, maybe intentional, poetic way of acknowledging that again as you put earlier on astutely venice is the real star of this movie and really the real romantic aspect of the film at least for me and that ends summertime 
1955 by David Lean. There we are, Brian. That's the movie. So I think we've hit on a lot of good and not so good things. I feel like I have just a couple more or really just to emphasize some. One note, I I spent about, I don't know, three or four minutes thinking about if you were to make a ridiculous Hollywood sequel name of Brief Encounter, what would it be? And the best one I could come up with was Too Brief, Too Encounter. Uh, Any other good sequel names for Brief Encounter? Step Up to Brief Encounter, Brief Encounter, Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) I'm not sure. I don't know anything about Brief Encounters. So what is the gist of that one and what makes this one a sort of sequel? Yeah, I don't necessarily want to spoil it because I think part of the charm of that movie is not knowing too much about what's going to happen. But it does indeed involve people who, given their social strata, unlikely to have a long-term romance, otherwise finding some connection in each other. I won't get any more specific than that Otherwise, other than to say there was... A certain amount of echoes in this movie, even just the train being like a central image that brought me back to Brief Encounter, that you can almost call it a spiritual sequel, I suppose. It's a sequel to Brief Encounter in the same way that Everybody Wants Some is a sequel to Dazed and Confused. Gotcha. If that means anything to you. A little bit. <laughs> Which for me was interesting because, and and kind of appropriate because I did picked this film because I liked Brief Encounter. So there you go. But I think we can agree on this. The real strength of the film is David Lean's amazing touch on capturing Venice and Technicolor. It's just intoxicating, man. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's makes you want to hop in there and walk around the alleys and sit down with a glass of wine and, you know, go in the cathedral and and all that. I I wanted to be back in Venice as I was watching this movie. It made me really nostalgic. And I do really think the fact that Lean was forced to film this like with lots of extra Venice in the top and the bottom of the frame actually did make a big impact on like how much of the feeling and the scope of Venice he was able to capture. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And ultimately, that's what's going to buoy my rating is the cinematography and just all the good stuff that's there in Venice to shoot. Right. To be shot. Uh, I mean, lots of cool stuff. There's canals and there's the super old buildings. David Lean and his camera guy get a lot out of like going up on top of the buildings and shooting down. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Which reminded me a little bit of Suspiria, our very first film that we talked about where th- there was a lot of like wide open shots of Italian town squares mm. and just artsy views of Italy. Okay, yeah. It, it was very different there because there was like extreme unnatural colors and supernatural stuff going on. Uh, whereas here it really is just like you're on a vacation. Agreed, yeah. It's like real day-to-day things, but artfully depicted. Yeah, I don't know. It was more than just like a travel episode of a tv show like you can tell that david lean put a lot of thought into how to capture the feeling of the city and one thing i read is that he really fell in love with this city when he was filming it and bought a house in venice and spent significant amounts of his older life in venice i think the downside that we've touched on is 
I wouldn't call the screenplay bad necessarily, but it's definitely prosaic. It doesn't capture the sweeping romance that the movie wants it to be. It doesn't nail the characterization. It just kind of gestures towards a romantic Italian affair and assumes that we will, via the the lovely setting and the excellent direction, pick up on the emotional cues. And, and I do think that does lift the love story somewhat. Like you can really feel it in a few moments when otherwise from the writing, you might not quote unquote feel it. But it's funny. I feel like the first half of this movie by not having much story ends up being more memorable than the second half, which has more story because the first half just allows us to soak in the scenery a little bit more. Yeah. I'm in a place where like at the start of the movie, I didn't like Catherine Hepburn's character, but then I came around to her a little bit and I didn't think she deserved this like rough semi-romance she falls into <laughs> when all was said and done. And then it just kind of abruptly ends and I, I wasn't sure what to think. So you were less on the side of generic and more on the side of pretty bad when talking about the script. <laughs> Yeah, so, like, on the podcast as a whole lately, I am feeling like I've made several selections recently where it was a movie that I was very familiar with and liked, and then I bring it to the table, and I'm just like, this is an eight for me! I love this! And then when I've d gone and done that a couple times in a row, it just feels uh, disingenuous to like anything new that's brought to me. Just be like, <laughs> no, I don't want that. Uh, it, it really just shatters any illusion of objectivity. <laughs> so I feel bad uh, maybe not giving this one the best rating. But we'll see what happens when we uh, give our numbers. I say follow your heart. And I also say... That would be an interesting topic of reflection for our 50th episode spectacular that we'll do in a couple weeks. But uh, no, overall, not the fondest of this script. Yeah. Specifically, one thing that bugged me is I feel like the first half hour, we get a pretty solid setup of who are the other people staying at this bed and breakfast that she's staying at. And we learn a little bit about all of them and how they're going to interact but they end up really not playing that much of a role. It's like when she meets this other guy, that's really the only other person she interacts with. And other than like one or two little things, those characters end up really not mattering. And I thought that was a weird choice in the writing. It's like either don't really introduce them or give them more to do. I agree. They kind of fade out. But the McElhenney's did make me laugh. Yeah. I liked some of their lines. Uh, one related to what you talked about was at one point the wife says, oh, you got to go see the cathedrals. And the husband says, nah, they all blend together. <laughs> you can't tell one from another. Just It's just, it's all the same. Side note about cathedrals. San Marco, it's in my top five cathedrals I saw when I was in Italy. The most unique cathedral I saw is the one in Siena. So there's a cathedral in the, the Italian town of Siena, which, by the way, Siena in general is like the gem 
of northern Italy. But the cathedral there, its distinctive look is that they got a lot of white marble and they got a lot of black marble. And for the columns, they did slabs of white and black marble alternating. So you have this like zebra stripe look on the columns that is just so unusual. I'm going to have to send you pictures of the Siena Cathedral since we're on the topic of cathedrals. Really interesting. But San Marco is also up there as one of the more interesting ones. One thing they have, I can't remember now if it was San Marco or if it was the one in Siena. They have a museum of ancient music. And so you're talking like Renaissance or earlier era music where they would have these huge pages that they would have so that the whole choir could see the page at once. And often it was like very decorative so that it was like gold ink or like, I don't know, fancy writing and stuff. Very cool to look at and like imagine a classic mass or service in progress with a choir reading from this old uh, script of polyphonic hymns. That's really cool. I'm picturing that in my head. I'd like to see that. But (laughs) as I feel as I've done almost every week, I have a couple of suggested rewrites for this movie. Okay, what's your head canon for uh, alternate summertime? Well, one is, and this is, I will admit again, influenced by Brief Encounter. This movie is just begging for an internal monologue narration for Katherine Hepburn's character. Part of the problem is we have no idea what she's really, like, we just see her frowning and being alone. Like, we don't know what her relationship, like, give us more background on... What does this trip mean to her? What does she want to get out of this trip? How does this relate to her mundane life? How mundane is her life? What does she feel when she sees this guy? Give us an internal monologue for this character. And I feel like immediately, A, I care about this character a lot more, and B, I just get the romance more and like see it more from her perspective and why she would find this guy who... It's got some slightly off-putting vibes, to me at least, like what, what her connection is there. And I feel like there's a deep well you can mine there. And I feel like the reason that they didn't go that route is because it was adapted from a play and you can't really do that in a play. But I feel like you could easily write something like that and get a lot of depth in the character. Give us more of a, a lens into her frame of thinking. And that could have made this less of a venice travelogue and more of an actual romance i cared about that's one i got a more radical one for option two okay ready for option two yeah this is what i was thinking 20 minutes into the movie we get like a four minute scene of katherine hepburn interacting with the bed and breakfast owner and like introducing herself and talking about her life and for the viewer it's primarily to learn a few basic facts about the character and where she's staying, etc. I almost felt like Catherine Hepburn had more chemistry with the bed and breakfast owner than she did with Renato. Let's make this a old repressed American woman trapped in the moors of American puritanical values, having her lesbian awakening with the hotel owner, the, the bed and breakfast owner then this movie just immediately becomes 10 times more interesting than it is. 
I want to see that version of this movie. That's the version they would make this year. Yeah. That that would be like the Portrait of the Lady on Fire version of this movie. Um, this is out there, but uh, I was listening back recently to the uh, Return of the Living Dead episode, and one of your proposed script rewrites there was to have a zombie music video. Just like a, a song played by a zombie band. And when you said, radical change, four minute scene, I thought you were going to pitch... This movie really needs a zombie band playing a song. <laughs> it's like, that would be a radical change. Yeah. For, for summertime, if zombies appeared, that would add a different timbre to the film, I think. Uh, so either one of those versions of summertime, I think is a movie that, that would get a slightly higher rating for me. But I am ready to rate this film. Yeah, me too. So, listeners, you'll know that we have a signature section here called Is It Good? Where Brian and I each assign this movie a rating on the our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from a one out of eight, a very not good, to our eight out of eight masterpiece rating, Toward Day Good. So, Brian, I will ask you, is Summertime 1955 good? So I kept going back and forth in my head on this one because like something that annoyed me would happen with the characters or the story developments pretty consistently, but then just as consistently, I would be blown away by how beautiful and powerful the images are. Uh, So I land squarely at a four out of eight, which we've termed good-ish, and it's totally buoyed by the cinematography, and just what a great choice of setting Venice was. Thinking back to how in this period, like this was the closest you could come to experiencing Venice without physically going there. It was like our own little end of summer trip. Indeed, yeah. So so you believe that Summertime is a good-ish movie? Yes. Yeah, so where, where did you land, Dan? <sighs> Having gone and seen the city and now departed on the train. I'm really torn because I tend to be pretty focused on story and screenplay ahead of all other things. And from that lens, this is a imperfect movie. Uh, I think it's well-directed. I think it's really lovely for all the reasons you said. I mean, really your view of this movie is going to come down to how much can you tolerate the fairly simple romance that has a couple of, from my perspective, a couple of bugs for me getting really invested versus how much are you just intoxicated by Venice? And the answer for me is uh, I was medium on how much I could tolerate the romance. And I was very high on how much I was intoxicated by the Venetian window dressing, not even window dressing, the, the Venetian focal point of the film just like everything being driven by the venetian cityscape for me this is a good film because of that it's very watchable it's one i would probably watch again certainly with anyone who is interested in something easygoing and something where you get to experience pretty places I'm on the edge of a high good or a low very good. 
coming in, I was at a low, very good. I am feeling slightly downer about it than I was at the start of the recording. I'm going to give this a good, a five out of eight. I do think it's a good movie. I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's missing a couple of key pieces to get there. So, you know, I, I enjoyed my myself and I was really nostalgic for Venice to the point I almost wish that I could give this a very good, but I just can't in good conscience give it a anything higher than a good rating. So that's that's where I'm going to land. I kind of like when our discussions cause each other to sober up on a movie. <laughs> it's like, you got to come down to earth. The founder really is not that good. Uh, and you just have to deal with that. And uh, and we end up giving a, a slightly lower rating than we were ready to coming in. Yeah. Or it goes the other way. And I'm just wild about tourist trap. <laughs> and I bump you up from a two. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In a sense, it's a little like uh, when we were talking Care Bears movie the other day. Uh, <laughs> and I quoted the review that said... It has a lot going for it if you can tolerate the bears. Well, here, this movie has a lot going for it if you can tolerate the romance. And it is a romance film, so that may be a big ask. I, I kind of, I don't know. I'm getting older, Brian. I'm 33 years old. How old are you? I'm 31. Okay. I kind of like old people romances more than I used to. It's just that this one was not very interesting. So... I couldn't fully sign on. I used to hate old people romances. Give me give me the teens in their first love. That was that was me for a while. Just to interject, it's I mean she wasn't that old. They're not that old. No, she was like 45 or something when she recorded when she started this. And that's about how old I thought the character was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for what it's worth. Plenty of life to live. But that's old in Hollywood terms. I don't know. Sure. Anyways, I'm second guessing my five, but it's already out there. I'm comfortable where I'm at. <laughs> Brian, any parting thoughts or are you going to tell us what we're going to be discussing in the historic and essential and unmissable 50th episode of The Goods, a film podcast? That's right. We're halfway to our centennial. It's our 50th. It's a big milestone. And you guys know that we like to be seasonal here on The Goods and uh, tie in our topics to whatever time of year it happens to be. So this is the very last week of August. At least it will be when we record. And so it's just about back to school time. Very tail end of summer. And so I have queued up a selection that's, it's going to be a time sink, I'm not going to lie. It's going to take a while for us to watch all the way through it. Uh, but I teased it early on, almost a whole year ago, when we were in the, the fall season and we talked about Over the Garden Wall, another of my selections. And I said that if we ever had a longer window of time to dedicate to something, eventually we might come around to talking about Gravity Falls. So this is a short-ish TV series. It was two seasons of 20 episodes each. And I want to talk about it. So I gave Dan a heads up at the start of this summer that at the very end of the summer, we would talk Gravity Falls. 
And this is important because the whole thing takes place over one summer. So if things went to plan and we started at the beginning of the season, we would have that whole uh, three-month span to get caught up. I'm sure that uh, both of us have lived our lives between then and now and uh, maybe have some catching up still to do. But in theory, it was a good and apt and fitting plan. So that's what lies ahead, Dan. Uh, how much more work you got cut out for yourself. <laughs> I'm stoked, Brian. I'm looking forward to discussing Gravity Falls. Uh, I've watched, I think, seven episodes now. But I am pretty amped for talking about a TV show I know is one of your favorites. And I, I do think, I, I mentioned it at the beginning, I think we're going to record it in person. I think that will add to the to the gravitas of this next episode. Oh, so. good, good word. And yeah, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, reminder, guys, that next week we're going down to Orlando and we're supposed to see Aaron Fector, the uh, creator of the Rockafire Explosion robots. Check out that episode in our podcast feed if you haven't. And it's just really going to be a culmination in many ways for the history of our show so far. Indeed. Well, listeners, now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Summertime or any film we've previously discussed. Each week, as soon as we start getting them, we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. And if we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card. Enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's the goods film podcast at gmail.com we haven't got any submissions yet but we've only posted one episode with this call to action so i'm, I'm hoping we'll get some soon yeah we're optimistic we're sending out the messages in a bottle and hoping somebody's gonna pick it up out of the tide uh, sooner or later it could happen if you can get five dollars for an email i feel like that's a pretty good roi like somebody's gonna hear that and and reach out to us so yeah we're looking forward to it so uh send us your review of any movie we've watched and we will read it here and brian i'll see you for our 50th episode thanks for watching summertime i'm ready this is gonna be fun yeah thanks everybody (laughs) 